Candy. Tell me about it, Stern. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. I got chills, they're multiplying, and I'm losing control, cause of power you're supplying, it's electrifying. and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, because we go together like Ramalamalama, Kadingadadingadong, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. I don't want to do this. <laughs> Why on earth not? Well, just that little blurb you did there. <laughs> I'm not interested in it at all. You just shut down right just, there, didn't you? not really a sock hop girl. <laughs> On today's episode, Nikki and I are honoring those summer days that are drifting away and sitting down for her first viewing of 1978's Grease. But first, Nikia, I wanted to talk about nostalgia. Okay. Grease came out 40 years ago this year, 1978, based on a hit Broadway musical that opened in the early 70s, about a high school in the late 1950s. Mm-hmm. And that got me thinking about the cycles of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, When I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, film and television were lousy with stories about the 1950s and 60s, so about 20 years earlier. Mm -hmm. On TV in the 70s and 80s, we had shows set in the 50s and 60s like Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, MASH, Sha Na Na, and The Wonder Years. In movie houses, we had stuff like Grease, American Graffiti, Stand By Me, Back to the Future, Peggy Sue Got Married, etc. My childhood was, as a result, filled with more doo-wop music and poodle skirts <laughs> than a child born during the Vietnam War should have experienced. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that confuses you sometimes because like I know a lot of fifties and sixties music. Place you earlier, and you you yeah. think I was somehow alive during that time, and I was not. It's just that I was inundated with this stuff yeah, in the seventies and eighties. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's something that happens in every generation. I think as each generation grows up and starts making the art, right. they inevitably harvest their own childhood and adolescent experiences mm-hmm. and feed it to their own kids to the next generation. Usually, I think, romanticizing it and sanitizing it along the way. Right. In the 90s and the aughts, the nostalgia was for the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. That was when we got films like Almost Famous, Dazed and Confused, Boogie Nights, and movie versions of The Brady Bunch and Charlie's Angels, <laughs> 70s TV shows. On TV, we had stuff like Wet Hot American Summer, Freaks and Geeks, and the remake of 70s TV show Battlestar Galactica. In the 90s, they tried to revive WKRP in Cincinnati. I didn't know they tried to do that. They oh. did. It was short-lived, <laughs> as was the short-lived reboot of The Love Boat. Oh. So all of this 70s stuff started coming back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. 
And it's happening now to a ridiculous extent. Mm -hmm. In the 2010s, we've seen original shows set in the 80s and 90s, like The Americans, Stranger Things, Halt and Catch Fire, Fresh Off the Boat, The Goldbergs, the Goldbergs mm -hmm. Glow, and Pose. And we've already seen reboots of 80s, 90s fare like Roseanne, Full House, Will and Grace, Twin Peaks, The X-Files, and MacGyver. And Murphy Brown coming up, too. And we can yet look forward to <laughs> reboots of Murphy Brown, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Magnum P.I., Mad About You, Charmed, Daria, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But the Daria remake, they're... Many others. They're focusing on uh, Joni. Are they focusing on Joni with the remake? I don't, I don't know. I think the black, the, the, the lone black girl <laughs> in all of Lawndale High. So I'm all on board with that one. Okay, so... I don't know what to do with this. It's just an observation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I think it's interesting because I think for those of us who didn't live through the time period in question, I think our entire concept of that can be shaped by this pop culture we experience. Right. So when I think of the 1950s, I'm more likely probably to picture happy days mm -hmm. than I am to picture, you know, racism and polio, for example. <laughs> like, it's not... <laughs> It's a much, it's a squeaky clean. The mind plays tricks. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, nostalgia is an interesting thing. Um, I mean, it's sort of like that conversation that we had around Back to the Future. It was like that question when you asked, you know, if you could go back to a certain period in time, where would you go? It's like, well, it depends on who you're asking. <laughs> right. Um, because, you know, the 60s was a very different time depending on who you were. And the 50s was a very different time depending on who you were. And Nostalgia for any decade right. in American history is hard for you. It's it is, and it's it's the same when people say they're having like Great Gatsby themed weddings. I'm like, yeah. did you read them? Like, <laughs> it's just, that was not a positive, loving story. Um, and it's it's quite dark and quite cynical. And so yeah, nostalgia. It's hard. And thinking about it in the sort of current political environment where that man's slogan is make america great again so it builds around this idea of like there was a past america that was white that was straight right that was male-led that was christian and that was when america was great in you know and i do think that is that's the 1950s right. is that's that sort of nuclear family mm -hmm. all white the suburban house of the picket fence mm -hmm. like that's what those people are picturing mm -hmm. when they picture what america allegedly looked like when it was great right right and so you know it's a little bit of that sort of you know, sweet poison of just like you're, you know, you can take it because on the on on the face of it, it's comforting and it seems right and it, it you know it, it makes you feel good. But the sort of the underbelly of it is sort of quite again poisonous because it's sort of reinforcing these ideas that were these images that were sort of based in white supremacy or at the very least a very segregated sort of idea of, of America, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, nostalgia's tricky for me. Um, and even stuff like I was thinking about, I mean, I loved The Wonder Years. I yeah, think The Wonder Years is a great show. show. It was a great show. I, I'm sort of interested to go back and rewatch it because I don't mm. know how much it actually dealt with the civil rights movement. Well, the daughter was sort of, she got the sort of was a little, and a little bit involved in things. But right. yeah, it was, yeah, it was that sort of thing. But yeah. I don't remember a lot of black people on that I show. I don't know that there were... That's a good. I would. Ha I haven't watched yeah. Wonder Years in a very long time. I don't remember there, at least not in any significant way. Um, did she date a black dude? Maybe. For, she... But if she did, it was like for one episode, <laughs> right? And it, it was the, like, like a very oh, special episode, right? Of Wonder exactly. Years, right? And it was very much like you are a a prop, right? Like you are not an actual character. 
so yeah, I mean, none of the, I mean, you know, as much as I loved Mad Men, you know, it did explore some of the inequities of the 60s. Like it, you know, dove pretty deeply in women's place in the workplace right. and things right. like versus the home and equal pay and things yeah. like that. But when it came to race, there was, you know, a little bit of that. Like Don got the black secretary yeah. at one point, but then she just sort of disappeared and they never really yeah. deeply dealt with it. I mean, I... I will sort of defend Mad Men on that because I think I think it was very consciously a show about mm-hmm. white people in the 60s. Sure, yeah. And I, I almost respect them for not shoehorning in mm-hmm. a bunch of different stuff. It was very much that limited position of privilege, that limited view. Mm-hmm. Like there was stuff going on that they were barely aware of. Right, right. Um, and I think that's realistic mm-hmm. for who those people were. Mm-hmm. Now... I mean, you can argue that Matthew Weiner should have conceived the entire show differently, but... Right. No, and I I mean, there was... And I guess in the way that it was sort of portrayed on the margins, I guess that makes sense if we're saying that that show was about a very particular type of person Mm -hmm. in the 60s. Because I think one of the ad men... I don't remember their names, but one of the ad men got involved with, like, the Krishnas or something at some point. (laughs) Yes. And then got involved... He started dating a black girl and then was sort of peripherally Mm -hmm. involved in sort of civil rights stuff. But Yeah, and it was like, oh... Paul's supposed to go register voters right. this weekend, but right. it was not a, you know, we didn't right. see Paul do that. Right. It was very peripheral. And then we didn't see that people were dying registering voters, right. <laughs> black voters. So, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this, yeah, so nostalgia's sort of always been a little bit tricky for me. Okay, so let's uh, tackle this question from a more fun perspective. Okay. So... Assuming my my 20-year cycle theory has some merit to Mm -hmm. it. And it's not a perfect formula. And, you know, Mad Men's a good example of a show that was not made 20 years after the era I was talking about. But whatever. So 20 years ago was 1998. Mm. What piece of pop culture from then (laughs) would you be nostalgic to see remade, rebooted, or sequelized? So in general, I am anti-reboot. I <laughs> I feel like these things sort of exist when they were supposed to exist. Uh-huh. Um, hopefully at the time they got the run that they deserved. And I think that there are probably many people who have new ideas and new stories to tell that we could probably be putting sort of resources and our eyes to. Yeah, I agree. I mean, either the thing was great, right. in which case don't fuck with it. Right. Or it was shit and we probably don't need right. more shit. Do we need a reboot of Full House? No, no, I don't think we needed that. And I, I feel like it tends to be to diminishing returns. Like, it may yeah. have been great, but then you bring it back and it isn't. But, I mean, there were shows that, I, of course, I loved in 98. Like, I was a big Felicity fan. I have no desire to see a Felicity reboot. See, that's one I a... thought of, actually, because I would actually be curious really? to see not a reboot, a sequel. Okay. Because I think she ended up with Ben at the end of that series, and that was not going to end well. Ben was, uh, which one? Ben was the pretty boy. That she followed to NYU. Yes. Right. Okay. Right. I was Dumb as a post. Right. And Noel was the other one. Right. Okay. I mean, yeah, she, well, yeah. An honest exploration of how that would have ended up. <laughs> divorce. I would, be, I would really be curious to see. <laughs> Absolute divorce. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, I just, I'm less interested in all white, if not largely white, shows. Right. I have less patience for that than I, I did. Um, which is most shows. Which is most shows. Um, again, I think Felicity had the one black girl that yes. was like a ridiculously amazing student. She was basically Joni. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> it was just, So I just, so, I, you know, I don't necessarily need to see that. I don't need to see Felicity and Ben 
probably living a you know a very privileged life in California or wherever the hell they ended up, but dealing with their marital angst because they were not meant to be together in the first place. Uh, and then she gets another shitty haircut because she's going through a crisis. Right. So I'm not so much interested in that. So Living Single ended its run in 1998. Okay. And that was a show that I really, really loved. And that was Friends before there was Friends. And it was, you know, the the four girlfriends living in Brooklyn, working in Brooklyn, dating and trying to find all black cast. So funny and so well written. Now, I will say, I think it ran for four or five seasons. The last season or so was not great. Mm -hmm. So I'm not necessarily itching to see... Well... I mean, it would be interesting to see sort of where they are because Brooklyn is so different now. And mm-hmm. would we be exploring these women in their 40s? And like, what does that? And so having a show of four black women exploring friendship and exploring love in their 40s is not, you know, an opportunity that comes along very often. So just for that, I, I might be interested in it. And I love all of the actors and actresses that were on that show. New York Undercover. Ended in 98. You probably didn't watch I, that. No, no. <laughs> so that was, um, I actually really loved that show. So that was these two detectives, one black, one Puerto Rican, Malik Yoba and Michael DeLorenzo, both delicious men to look at in New York, struggling with their work and trying to balance like their personal lives and things like that. It was, and I, you could probably easily reboot that because it's, it's a cop show and they're in New York and, right. you know, be two cops. Call. And it, it could probably, you could do some exploration around, you know, what does it mean to be cops of color in the New York police system and, you know, so all that. So that could be maybe interesting. But again, like, I'm not dying for any of this. <laughs> like, I'm not, I am not the person emailing, you know, yeah, ABC no. or NBC saying bring back this show. And part of it is, I think I have, I like shows to have a sort of shelf life. Like, I don't need a show to go on for 10 seasons. Mm-hmm. I don't need a show. It's, at some point. Right. When you're done with the story, just just end it. And then let it be something that's great. And you can buy the DVDs and revisit them or you can, you know, revisit them on streaming services. Well, and I I think there's a real risk of ruining the original thing when you do the reboot. Right. Which happened for me with Gilmore Girls. Mm, That was terrible. That that (laughs) reboot that we got last year or the year before, whenever it was... Made me hate those characters Mm -hmm. so much Mm -hmm. that I cannot watch the original series anymore. Yeah. Like, they were always, like, right on the edge of just being terrible people. Yeah. But they went so far over the edge in that reboot that it ruined this thing that I used to like. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, right. So that's the danger of those things. I mean, and I get it. Like, we see it in film and we see it in television. Nostalgia is sort of guaranteed money at least at the outset, and you have a built-in audience, but you do run the risk of sort of ruining something that was special to a generation of people because you're trying to capitalize on a magic that, you know, may not still be there and you may not be able to Mm -hmm. um, replicate. It's like one of my sort of favorite shows to just stream and put on and just enjoy in a completely mindless way is The Golden Girls. <laughs> I love The Golden that Girls. That is going through a renaissance it right is. now. People are just obsessed it's, with it's that actually, show. It's a really good show, actually. But, like, I don't need them to, you know, obviously they can't reboot it with the original cast. Mm, um, Betty White would still be up Betty White it. would still be there. But, <laughs> um, but the, I don't. Like, I think it you could just watch it on streaming and enjoy it for what it was. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of it is still relevant today. A lot of it is... It's still just a funny show. Right. You don't need to redo it. And you would, you know, miss out on all that awesome wicker furniture and, like, bad <laughs> just 80s, 90s... Uh, the shoulder pads. Design. And, it, you, and you just yeah. miss all that. And why would you want to do that? So, 
I am tentatively optimistic about the Buffy the Vampire Slayer reboot. Because it, so it's is not she a black reboot. now? So what, what's the yeah, deal? Well, okay. it's not a reboot, but that's a show that has sort of a built-in... Right, audience. You know, you can have... No, a built-in excuse to continue it. Because mm-hmm. that's... In there's every generation, a there's a Slayer. Right. So we're, this is going to be about the new Slayer, presumably. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I could be on board for. I guess. If it's good. Right, that's... If it's good. <laughs> And again, I mean, sometimes it's difficult because I think sometimes the instinct is to just drop a person of color in what has been historically a white role or a white franchise. Right. And I don't always know that that's actually... Without actually talking about how it would be different. Right. I don't actually know that that's to the... Like, just make shows about people of color and hire writers of color and hire directors of color. And you don't need to sort of take these sorts of white cultural artifacts and then just say okay just slap a latino on it <laughs> so it's just yes i don't know but you know we'll see okay well how about movies because there were there were actually a number of movies you really like from that year i was yes. looking at the movie list so are you interested in the reboot of the big lebowski no one with say let's propose i don't know jared leto as the dude i'm gonna slap your face <laughs> Or one of the Chris's. One of the Chris's can be the dude. <laughs> which Chris would you like to be the dude? Well, my favorite... I always forget which one he is. My favorite Chris is um, one that was in Wonder Woman. Chris... Uh, is that Pine? I think that's Pine, yes. That's probably my favorite Chris. Okay. I cannot see him as the dude. <laughs> I can't see any of the Chris's as the dude, really. And that's a, like that's such an iconic character. I don't know how anyone... And then how do you do it and not try to just sort of mimic what Jeff Bridges did? Right. And then you're just doing like a bad Jeff Bridges I'm actually a little surprised that we haven't gotten an attempt at like a Big Lebowski TV show. It would not be good. Maybe the Coen brothers have their stuff nailed down that nobody can do it's something it, but horrible it would, like it would that. not be good. Like you would just be watching this schlubby guy <laughs> for five seasons. I just don't think it would be good. Yeah, it would be a horrible sitcom. I don't think that would be good at all. Okay, uh, Meet Joe Black, which we discussed a few episodes ago, <laughs> came out that year. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe someone should remake that because they didn't do a good job with it the first I time. I still hold that that is an awesome movie. <laughs> You have Brad Pitt speaking patois to a Jamaican woman, and it is amazing, and it's the best thing ever. And you like when he gets hit by the car. I do like when he gets hit by the car. I know. That's you can't remake me. One Joe of the Black. funniest scenes in, te- in movie history. You cannot remake it. Uh, I, I think How Stella Got Her Groove Back came out in 98. Mm-hmm. You could remake that with fucking Angela Bassett <laughs> and then put in another, like, 20-year-old black dude to stand next to her, and she would look amazing. Does she need to get her groove back she, again? I mean... Like, she already got her groove back. Like, like did Angela could just... Take... 20 years from now, Angela could do how Stella got her groove back, and you'd be like, I could see why he's with her, because she's fucking amazing. <laughs> so that may be the only one, just so I could see Angela, you know, okay. school another young buck and look fabulous while doing it. How about uh, Practical Magic? That's a movie you, you really like. <laughs> I think that would make a good TV show. Uh, but that's why you have Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Like, uh, we have I guess a witch so. show, and we're going to have Charmed. So you don't need a lot of witch shows. <laughs> Too many witches? Too many witches. And again, no, because it was sort of the magic of that cast. I thought it was a great cast. I, it was probably the most I've ever liked Nicole Kidman in a film. Um, and it has Stocker Tanning as a witch. <laughs> as an old bitty witch. Like, you just... No, you can't. Like, none of the, you can't remake these films. It's not going to happen. 
You really liked Pleasantville. That was another one that came out in 98, and that one was... Um, I didn't love that movie. It was okay. No. But yes, that was another 50s nostalgia movie. Mm -hmm. That one sort of walked a very fine line between the nostalgia that the kid had gotten from television about what that era was like, and then what it was really like. Mm -hmm. The sort of intolerance and conservatism and all of that. I can't remember. I know it started out in black and white, and then there was color because he started introducing sort of the radical ideas of present day or something. Yeah, that was the part of that movie that was a little problematic. Did that color were, come with actually people of color? I, I don't think it did, <laughs> and I think it was doing sort of a an allegory symbolism thing with the color. Because uh, people started talking about the colored people oh, and being prejudiced against the colored people, mm, by which they meant the white people mm, who were in color now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where that movie maybe got a little heavy-handed and mm. problematic. Race 101. <laughs> Got it. I mean, there are a few that you could remake because they're just like... I think Mulan came out in 98. There's going to be... They're doing a live-action Mulan, mm-hmm. so that's coming out. And they're actually casting an Asian lead actress, which is a fucking feat in itself. Because it's <laughs> which really shouldn't need saying, right. but does. That's amazing. <laughs> it's not going to be Scarlett, Scarlett Johansson. Johansson. Right. So that'll be coming out. But there's movies like, there are some teen movies that came out in 98, like Can't Hardly Wait, which was yeah. the one with... Um, That's a very late 90s movie. Very I actually kind of like that movie. I actually like that movie too, but you could do that movie again because yes. it really is just about, you know, the high school, end of high school right. party sort of thing and have the, that, those sort of same sort of characters. Um, so that would be easy to sort of remake. Uh, here's one from 98 that would be a timely remake, okay. American History X. You, no one, no, that should not happen. <laughs> no. Don't we need a new no, American History X? No, you can just X? turn on the news if you want to do that, or go deep into some... some American History double X? Red, Reddit theme, Reddit threads or whatever. No, we don't, we don't need that <laughs> at all. We have enough sort of Nazi propaganda going out. <laughs> That's okay. My problem is I feel like 1998 was like last week. Like it does not seem like 20 years ago to me. It does to me. I was in high like, school. Like all so these movies I feel like they just came out like The Big Lebowski is not an old movie to me. Mm. I feel like maybe 5 years ago that came out, something like that. Yeah, no. But no. Yeah, no. I think after you reach a certain age it's like everything is <laughs> new. <laughs> and everybody that's under like 25 looks like they're 12. Yeah, well yeah, yeah they are. <laughs> It feels a long time ago to me, though, because that was high school, and that feels like that was forever ago. And again, it it probably is because I'm sort of on that cusp of coming of age during that time, and I'm now entering, you know, I'm in my sort of mid-30s. Well, see, I was already a disgruntled adult then, and I'm a disgruntled adult now, and not that much has changed. So I do sort of look back on it like, oh, and I I think part of that is you get, you reach the age where you realize that life is not what you thought it was going to be in a lot of ways. <laughs> and so you start to just sort of look over your shoulders like, oh, remember when. Um, and that's where you get the sort of rose-colored glasses, right? Because it's like things are difficult now and you're, you're, you're have, you have to adult in a way that you hadn't thought about. It's like you, when you were young, you couldn't wait till you were an adult and then you're, you're, you're an adult and you're just like, oh, this fucking sucks, actually. I don't want right. to do this. So... Yeah, I do think that's a big deal. Because I, I don't have anything I'm nostalgic about about the late 90s. Mm-hmm. I don't. The music. the cl- I don't. I couldn't even tell you what the music was. I couldn't tell you what the clothes mm-hmm. were. Um, well, you can look in fashion now to sort of see that. Because in fashion, it's similar same. to film and television, it goes through cycles. So right now we're seeing the sort of 80s, 90s revival Yeah, in that's a bad idea, man. <laughs> Those who do not remember the past are doomed to repeat the fashion mistakes. 
Some of it's good. You know, stop bringing back the mom jeans. That is not a you good know, look. I think you have to have the right body for it. I'm not a fan of them, but... On me, I should say. But I have seen them look good on some girls. But, like, the sort of exaggerated silhouettes of the late 80s, the sort of big shoulder pads and uh-huh. things like that are coming back. And, you know, people all about the sort of blazers and suitings for women. But, yeah, so if you are, if you can't remember what the fashion was, then all you need to do is look at the runways now and you'll get an idea. All right. Well, it sounds like in general we're just sort of against nostalgia and Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Just new. There are such great new shows and there are a diverse group of folks who have great ideas that need support and need resources and need platforms. So let's do that instead. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's go into talking about Greece. I guess we could have watched the, I think there was a 2016 live, you know, they've been doing yes, all those live versions of musicals. Mm-hmm. With Vanessa Hudgens mm-hmm. and people I don't really know, mm-hmm. which I guess then we've got that's nostalgia for nostalgia, right? right? That's the doubling down on the nostalgia, right? Yeah, I have no interest in any either of those. <laughs> but we shall watch the original. John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John, Greece, the Broadway smash that made theatrical history by becoming one of the longest-running musical comedies of all time, breaks loose on the motion picture screen. The sensational star of Saturday Night Fever ignites the screen in Greece. And he does it all with Olivia Newton-John in her motion picture debut. Cheer up. Uh, hit me from Kanicki's like a Hallmark car. You pig. I love it when you talk dirty. John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John explode across the motion picture screen in Greece. The movie filled with more song, more dance, more of everything that makes a great musical unforgettable. John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John together for the first time in Greece. Okay, so what do you actually know about Greece, and how have you never seen Greece? Well, it's a musical, and you know my feelings about musicals. No, I don't recall. How do you feel about musicals? I sort of hate musicals. Um, <laughs> there's nothing that you need to sing that you can't just say. And I don't really have any interest in Olivia Newton-John or, what's his name? John Travolta. John Travolta. So I know that it, it takes place in a high school, and that Olivia Newton-John starts out as a sort of prim and proper poodle skirt wearing <laughs> mm-hmm. young lady and then after do they have sex uh, at this point we don't know okay after having sex with john travolta <laughs> starts wearing super tight leather pants which it's not good for the JJ. um and she sings about loving him and he sings about like fucking her basically <laughs> so seems like the gender politics on this are really good 
And Starker Channing is in it. And that's all I know. And Starker Channing is in it. Okay. <laughs> Are they like the pink ladies or something? I feel like there's they're pink shirts or something. <laughs> I've seen pictures. Okay. So let's let's talk about this musical. Okay. So I did not know this until I did a, my, you know, usual casual research for this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grease actually began right here in Chicago. Written by Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey, who were two Chicago actors. They based it on their experiences at William Howard Taft High School mm-hmm. right here in Northwest Chicago. Chicago, and it premiered at the original Kingston Mines. Mm. Um, not the not the Blues Club now, but they had a theater in oh, the okay. early seventies, and that's where it premiered. And it was a huge hit, according to Rick Cogan in the Chicago Tribune. There were three performances a week, and each became a standing room only sensation. Now, apparently, it was very different then. It was much more Chicago-oriented. Mm-hmm. It had, you know, references to Chicago landmarks and places and cultural things like the Polish community mm-hmm. and all of that mm-hmm. in it. And it was much, much raunchier. <laughs> According to Kogan, tougher, raunchier, and some would argue vastly better than any version since. But these two guys who were struggling actors got the offer to blow it up into a Broadway musical. Mm-hmm. And took it and rewrote the book. There were a lot, the songs were different, the dialogue was different. And according to Jim Jacobs, one of the, the co creators, in 2011 in an interview with Playbill, he said Grease went from an in your face show about delinquents to a gang of lovable people singing rock and roll. He said the original was a real play and the song stemmed out of that. And there was just, there was much more profanity, there was much more sexual content, at least in the dialogue, the the early versions of some of the songs that still exist had different lyrics mm-hmm. that were much more suggestive. But it got cleaned up. It opened off-Broadway in 1972 and moved quickly to Broadway, where it received seven Tony nominations... The Broadway production ran 3,388 performances, which was a record at the time. And since, it has, of course, gone on to become one of those global phenomena. Mm -hmm. More than 123,000 different productions have been mounted around the world. A lot of various people have been in it. Uh, Travolta did do it on Broadway. Barry Bostwick was in it at one point. Peter Gallagher. Patrick Swayze. Treat Williams. Uh, The London production opened in 1973 with Richard Gere in the lead role. The Sandy part, which is the the Olivia Mm Newton-John in the movie, that has not attracted a lot of high-profile talent. Rizzo, which is the Stockard Channing part, Mm -hmm. has been the biggest celebrity magnet for people who have done this show on stage. So Adrian Barbeau originated the role. Brooke Shields has done it. Rosie O'Donnell has done it. Sheena Easton has done it. Jasmine Guy has done it. Lucy Lawless, Linda Blair, and Vanessa Hudgens in the TV version, the recent TV version. The movie opened in 1978, uh, directed by Randall Kleiser, who, not an illustrious career, (laughs) The Blue Lagoon, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, Nice. Big Top Pee Wee. As I said, Travolta had played the part on stage. He did in the movie. I think he was 24 at the time. And they considered a lot of people for Sandy. Apparently, they looked at Anne Margaret, who I think had to be in her 30s at that point. Susan Day. Marie Osmond was considered. They finally settled on Olivia Newton-John, who was a singer. She was not an actress at that point. Mm-hmm. Or, for that matter, Pre or very post, successfully let's get after. physical. 
This was pre Let's Get Physical. Okay. She was originally she was sort of a country western singer. Oh, okay. She's Australian, but she was kind of a country western singer. And I think Let's Get Physical came later. Mm. The film made some changes. They moved the setting to California, but it was a big hit. It was the highest grossing musical ever at the time, overtaking Believe it or not, The Sound of Music. Really? Yes. Okay. People prefer leather pants to Nazis. Got it. (laughs) It's still the fourth highest grossing musical of all time after Les Mis, Mamma Mia, and Beauty and the Beast. And I have to confess, I am not someone who has a lot of nostalgia for this film. It was never one of my favorite musicals. So why are we watching it? Because it's a cultural phenomenon. It's a landmark. I mean, I think it's ridiculous that you haven't seen it, even though it's not something I love. And I haven't seen it in a long, long time. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's better than I'm remembering it. I saw a stage version. There is a a school version of this play that can be performed in high schools (laughs) in which they have excised... Even more so than the premarital sex, smoking, drinking, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And I saw that, I don't know how long ago that was. It must have been 10 or 15 years ago. But my my old high school put it on. And for some reason, while I was home, my friend and I went to see the play at our old high school. Mm -hmm. I thought it was terrible. (laughs) Like, not the production, though that probably wasn't great, but I thought the play was terrible. To me, it the ratios are off in this musical. I think the, the music-to-plot ratio is off. Okay. Which is something that the creator said, too. He said it was originally, like, one part music, three parts story. Mm-hmm. And then when they took it to Broadway, that got switched, where it became one of those musicals where it's... The story's told through the music. The story... Well, the story is just linkage between songs. I see. Okay. So it's almost like a jukebox musical, Mm -hmm. even though the songs are original. So I... Yeah. I am not totally sanguine going into this. we'll see what happens. You are less than sanguine about it. I am. And now I'm focused on something else. So when you said, um, when you talked about Olivia Newton-John and I mentioned, uh, let's get physical. Mm-hmm. And I remember in the video, she's wearing the, you know, leotard with the... Okay, I want to stop you for a second. Okay. And go on the record that you have been thinking about that... The whole the time you've been 10 talking. minutes yeah. while I've been talking and yeah. not listening to anything I actually No, because said. I do not care about the movie. Okay. Okay, and she's wearing the headband. <laughs> um, so I'm really not sure why I bothered with this part. <laughs> uh, I was very upfront about not wanting to watch this film, so I don't think you should be upset. Um... But it reminded me of growing up, my mom had this record. Oh, shit, is this it? So I've been looking for a photo. She had this um, workout album from Jane Kennedy. Do you know who Jane Kennedy is? Yeah. Um, I think it was like Love Your Body or something was the title of it. But I remember the picture. There was like a, a booklet that came with the album that had all the positions in it. And there was one position she does where she's like her legs are splayed a little bit and she's bent over. So her hair is sort of falling. And (laughs) something about that visual scared the shit out of me when I was. And I don't know why, but she had the leotard and the headband on. So that's why where my brain went. Is there a sexuality to it that bothers you? There's something like scary about it. And I don't know why. And I think part of it is the way the hair looks when she's bent over. Does she look like the chick climbing out of the television set in the rain? (laughs) 
Is it that kind of image? <laughs> no, it's sort of permy hair. Like, it's not okay, straight. I, it's not I, like straight, long, straight. I don't think I can help you with that. That's weird. It is weird. And I think there's more. It also has nothing to do with anything we're Because I don't about. care about Greece. Well, it, but I explained the. I explained the. No, I understand how your brain way. went there while you were sitting there spacing out, not listening to but I can't find any fucking, of my research or information. But, like, or, okay, so she's amazing, right? So look at that. Like, she's, like, of course that's okay, a, like, People can't see that now. Now you're showing me things on your laptop. And okay, our well, listeners, every, people can I mean, look up I, the Jane I can Kennedy link to this, I love guess. your body workout album, but I can't find the exact photo. But you see how there's a little booklet that comes with it and she's doing all these uh-huh, exercises? Yeah. I need to find this. Okay, well, now I know what to get you for Christmas. So, like, babe, we need to move on. Okay, well, now this is, I'm fixated now. <laughs> I think, I think again, you're just stalling because you don't want to watch the movie. I don't, and again, I've been up front about it. And in that. fact, we briefly debated, because Burt Reynolds passed yes. away this week, yes. and we bri- even though we'd already announced Grease, we briefly debated doing Deliverance instead. Yes. And you said you would prefer that. Absolutely. And the only thing you know about Deliverance is what? Uh, the ass rape. Yes, okay. <laughs> so you would prefer watching ass rape to watching a musical? Yes, I would. Okay. Well, this has music in it. <laughs> yes, I prefer, you know, hillbilly. Were they cannibals? <laughs> <laughs> they were They were just hillbillies. I Yeah, we will watch it one of these right. days. It's I, on the list. I would prefer that to, uh-huh. to Greece. Yes, absolutely. No, no question. Okay, so this film has a high bar to clear if you're actually going to enjoy it. Well, I'm not going. Is it long? I don't think it's overly long. Is it more than two hours? I don't know. I haven't checked the running time on See, it. That's something I need you to know before we go in to every film because <laughs> there's no reason for it to be over two hours. And if it is, I'm going to be a little bit upset about that. I know it has considerably less ass rape than Deliverance does. Maybe the Chicago version had more. <laughs> Just saying. We keeps it real. I could hurt someone like me. Out of spite or jealousy I don't steal and I don't lie But I can feel and I can cry A fact I'll bet you never knew But to cry in front of you That's the worst thing I could do. Okay, during the break, Nakia and I watched Grease. Nakia, what did you make of this film? Is Grease the word? Is it the one that you want? Are you hopelessly devoted to Grease? I am none of those things. <laughs> I did not enjoy this film. <laughs> really? <laughs> You shock me, madam. No, I, no, I'm sorry. I just <laughs> couldn't, I couldn't make it happen. So I, yeah, no. I mean, we went into it with a deficit, right? Because we, I'm sure people that have listened to this podcast before know my feelings about musicals in general. You may have mentioned that once or twice, yeah. So it was always, already, it was always going to have sort it was, of a, It was a tough sell right Yeah, it was going to be an uphill climb. Um, and this did not make the trick at all. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, not a fan of Grease. Okay. I mean, I guess at the top here, maybe I should confess my own reactions to the film. Mm-hmm. 
Because um, I know it's my job to defend the movie. Exactly. Yes. Uh, I will acknowledge Greece is some kind of weird cultural touchstone for my generation. Mm-hmm. I'll acknowledge that it has a couple of catchy tunes. I disagree with that, but okay. <laughs> and a few charming moments. I'll even say that I think there are a lot of interesting things to discuss about it, so I'm glad we watched it. But I also have to say that this is exactly the kind of musical that just grates my ass. (laughs) I mean, I knew you would hate it because you hate all musicals. Not all, but most. Most. Yes. But to the extent that I hate it, and I kind of do... It's because I actually like musicals. Mm -hmm. And Grease is just, it's altogether too campy, too kitschy, too aggressively phony Mm -hmm. for me to actually enjoy. The whole tone of it is this, look how silly we're being tone. Everyone is acting almost as if they're in like a Saturday Night Live skit Mm -hmm. where it's not expected to be taken seriously. And that annoys me. Mm -hmm. It just, in any kind of movie, that annoys me. I find that level of camp distancing, not engaging. Right. There's nothing emotionally authentic to latch on to, which for me is what makes musicals work. Right. Is that emotional authenticity that comes through this very artificial format. And I think there are a lot of musicals like that, and I don't like any of them. Mm-hmm. Like Mamma Mia is like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Rocky Horror is like that. And honestly, Rocky Horror, once we get past Time Warp and I'm a Sweet Transvestite, yeah, then that's fair. I'm sort of done with that movie, too. That's fair. And all three of those have been these worldwide phenomena. Right. Which makes me wonder if people who like these sorts of musicals aren't the kind of people who don't actually like musicals. But that would be me, though, right? Well, yes, you were an extreme <laughs> case. But people who see the musical format as this thing that's fundamentally silly and phony. Right. And then can react to something like Mamma Mia that mm-hmm. is just leaning so far into being silly and phony. Right. I don't know. I mean, I think that's actually interesting that you mentioned those three as sort of the ones that you have a hard time connecting with or as examples of musicals that sort of lack the emotional depth to get you engaged in the actual story. Um, because I, I'm, I'm actually a fan of Rocky Horror, but I'm a fan of Rocky Horror. I almost don't consider it a film so much as I consider it an experience. Sure. And like it is ridiculous and it is meant to be sort of made fun of and, and, and laughed at. And and I think the main reason why it works is because of Frankenfurter. Right. Tim Curry. Right. That character is just so interesting and so out there and at the time so sort of transgressive in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. It makes it a much more interesting sort of work than what it would be. Otherwise, or that it deserves to be, I should say. And then Mamma Mia, I feel like you only like if you like ABBA. Like, I don't know how else you would enjoy (laughs) that film. If you are really into the ABBA catalog, then you will be into Mamma Mia because it really is just a a reason to sort of string together some ABBA songs. Grease, I did not like any of the music, which is a large part of my problem with a lot of musicals is I don't engage with the music Mm -hmm. in most of these. I think the songs are not great. So if I if the story is then weak and is only meant to get you from song to song to song, and then I'm not connecting to the songs, 
and there's really nothing for me. <laughs> the whole, the whole, the whole is thing feasible. is just a fail. So, and I know you said you enjoy some of the Grease songs. I there was, I mean, there was one song I appreciated just because I thought the messaging was good. Yeah, and I know what, and I to me that's the only part of the movie that works. But let's put a pin in that for now. But otherwise, I thought the music sucked. Yeah, and that was terrible. So yeah, there was just nothing for me <laughs> in Grease. Okay, but it is this phenomenon. Phenomenon. Mm-hmm. As film writer Terry White says, to people who love Grease, it's more than just a film. It reminds them of when they first watched it. It reminds them of what it meant to them when they were a kid, what it taught them about being in love, what it taught them about teenage rebellion. I think it stays with you throughout your whole life. And that seems to be true. And I don't have that relationship to this film. Mm-hmm. And I did not see it particularly young. I probably was in high school the first time I saw Grease. Mm-hmm. But because I didn't have that relationship with the film, I wanted to hear from someone who did. So I asked an old friend of mine named Aaron to send me some thoughts because I knew Aaron was a Grease fanatic. <laughs> Aaron has a blog called Little Miss Gaddafi, which I'll link to in the show notes. And she used to have a blog called Beauty School Knockout, which is, of course, a Grease reference. Ah, yeah. So here's what Aaron had to say. She says, It is perhaps difficult for anyone not in a certain age group to understand the heavy, heavy impact 1978's Grease had on children's psyches. A lot of stuff from the stage musical that survived the film adaptation was not kid-friendly. And even in 1978, the racy stuff gave the movie total street cred. Even to little boys in my first grade class who couldn't get over the hot dog leaping into the bun during the song (laughs) Sandy. In fact, thinking about it at this moment, I'm not sure how those kids in my Chicago Catholic school even knew what the fuck was going on in that scene. But really, Aaron says, there was nothing so big as Bad Sandy. After seeing the movie and receiving our Grease albums for Christmas in 1978, my friend and I, both ballet dancers, immediately cut off all the feet of our black tights and spent every single day of the rest of our Christmas vacation in our mother's high heels, taking turns being Danny and Sandy in the three main tunes. And she says if we'd had access to hoop skirts, they would have been all over that shit too. <laughs> in college, she says, a friend gave me a pair of black spandex pants because she knew of my love for Bad Sandy. I've been gifted several pairs of heels that are almost but not entirely like Bad Sandy's heels, and of course I have the jacket. I spent hours trying to get my hair to look like that, and indeed it is the reason that, upon graduating 8th grade, I dyed my hair blonde. She says, I have had discussions all over the world with women about who is more fuckable, Zuko or Kanicki. This is a standard personality test. Beals or Stones, Lennon or McCartney, Mick or Keith, Zuko or Kanicki. We'll get your take on that in a minute. Mm-hmm. As a child, listening to the record, I'd skipped over Stockard Channing's Tour de Force performance of There Are Worse Things I Could Do as a boring slow song with no guitars or drums. I didn't realize until I was in Greece and cast as Sandy that I'd been fucked. I'd be Rizzo any day just to sing that song on stage. It's crazy how feminist it is and how true it is. And to this day, you can still get any DJ at any gay bar in the world to play that song, and you'll have a sing-along on your hands. Grease is so ingrained in our culture that when I broke up with a guy after college and was spurned by our mutual college friends, one of my other friends said that I'd stopped dating a T-bird and therefore had been expelled from the Pink Ladies. We literally used Grease analogies in our mid-twenties to speak about our relationship dramas. There's no way for me to be objective about this in the slightest, as Grease was as important to me for that period of time as any music since. There's a lot of goofy shit going on in Greece, but because it doesn't take itself too seriously, it almost takes the fun out of taking the piss out of it, because it's taking the piss out of itself, really. And then she suggests that we go on to watch Greece 2 with Michelle Pfeiffer. I won't be doing that. <laughs> 
Okay, so we are obviously going to proceed to take the piss out of it, even though Aaron says that it's impossible to do. <laughs> but I think Aaron gets at a couple of things that do make this film worth talking about, whether we actually like mm-hmm. it or not. First, I think Greece has a reputation for being kind of weirdly subversive about sexuality in particular, mm-hmm. and young women's sexuality in particular. I think it's a reading that has more to do with its cultural phenomenonism mm-hmm than its actual content because it was hardly the first film to deal with teenage sexuality. Certainly it wasn't the best film to deal with teenage sexuality. Mm-hmm. But it probably was the first film that baby boomers took their young children to go see. I mean, Erin was a Catholic school girl in the first grade <laughs> when she saw this film. Right. So I guess it was sort of this Trojan horse in that sense. Mm-hmm. And that kind of the very things I dislike about it, which is its campiness and its phoniness and this weirdly shallow, squeaky clean tone of it, made it seem fun and innocuous enough to be a family movie, even though it deals with premarital sex and pregnancy scares and all of that stuff. And then I think also just this, and Aaron gets to this, just this insight into young girls Mm -hmm. seeing this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. As Dr. Barbara Jane Brickman writes in her book, Grease, Gender, Nostalgia, and Youth Consumption in the Blockbuster Era, the film is, through much of its action, a girls' film, exploring girls' bedroom culture and fandom, wrestling with and critiquing that sexual double standard impinging itself on Rizzo and Sandy, and focusing on female teen friendships, more so, one might argue, than many, many teen films then or since. And I also found this piece by Tara McNamara at a blog called Social Moms. She says, Grease represents the transition between the repressive good girl 1950s that identified Sandra Dee and Doris Day as the role models of taming a man by using sexual restraint and the wild 60s ushered in by rock and roll, embracing freedom and adventure through sex and drugs. While the girls rib each other about their sexual histories, they don't do so in a judgmental way. Rizzo jumps in with gusto to sleep with Kaniki, and she never expresses regret or that her sexuality is a result of being damaged. Unlike the majority of Hollywood movies to follow, in Greece, the girls are in control of their sexuality. Greece also paved the way for the other defining 80s genre, the John Hughes film. Okay. <laughs> so let's start with the first quote you read from the critic who said something about it taught us about love, taught us about what? Yes, taught them about love, taught them about teenage rebellion. Okay. I don't know when it did those things. Um, <laughs> I just... <laughs> so, okay. So let me back up. Okay. So my initial response to it as someone my age seeing it now was I really don't get how anyone found this sort of subversive or sort of engaging in any way because this is a film that was made in 1978 is that right sort of spoofing in a way 50s teen culture right but it was made in 1978 so we are post-sexual revolution you know talking about sex and 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 sexual freedom is not an alien thing anymore it's it's sort Mm -hmm. of in the culture but when you explain that this film was seen by you know little children little children then okay then it becomes okay i see so it's people that you know children who have not yet sort of aged into the the sort of sexual consciousness of the culture so okay Fine. And, but this, to say that it says something about love, and then again, but then, so we get back to who is the audience, right? Because I don't think this movie says 
really anything <laughs> about love. The central relationship between Sandy and Zuko is ridiculous. <laughs> they basically spend the whole movie fighting or playing games with each other. Yeah. And then at the end, they both sort of change in order to be together. And then they drive off into the clouds, which I don't know what the fuck that means. Um, so it's like, that's not... That's not love. I would argue... That's not love? That is, I would hope not. Mm. And I would hope that that's not what little girls grow up thinking that love is. I would argue that the most sort of romantic moment in the film, the moment with the most chemistry, was when... Is it Kaniki? Yeah. When Kaniki asks Zuko <laughs> to be his second... <laughs> on th- it was such an intimate moment when he's like, uh-huh. I want... It, it was almost as if he was proposing because he's sort of stumbling over his words. Yeah. And, you know, that was actually a very beautiful moment. And then they sort of hug and then remember that they're dudes <laughs> and they have to sort of go back into their corners of toxic masculinity. That was the most loving moment in that entire film. Everybody else, for the most part, those people are going to either break up or be divorced if they decide to get married (laughs) at some point. The only other one maybe that you could argue is the girl that was eating the Twinkies all the time. Um, (laughs) Her and her dude had a little moment in like the malt shop where I think he called her fat too, though. Or he was like, I don't think you're fat, even though everybody says you're fat, Mm. which she was a normal sized person. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think that moment between Kaniki and Zuko is the most loving thing in the entire film. I'm trying so hard not to make a John Travolta joke here. No, we're not doing that. Okay. Um... But that almost would have been truly subversive, like saying that these two dudes... Well, yes, that would have been very subversive, but... You know, the T-Birds are together, (laughs) right? So, yeah, I just don't... It's hard for me to to sort of project backwards, right? Like, to project back to, okay, well, imagine that I'm 10 or however old and I've seen this, and does does that sort of change the way that I receive it? I mean, obviously Mm -hmm. it would. But being in my 30s, having had relationships, knowing what fucked up relationships look like, it's hard to sort of buy into it. Like, there's this moment after the scene with the girls at the at the, uh, the slumber party at Frankie's where Sandy goes off by herself and starts singing a terrible song about um, <laughs> being hopelessly devoted to Zuko. That was a song, by the way, that was written for the movie and for specifically Olivia Newton-John. That was the kind of song Olivia Newton-John sang and her people put that song in the movie. It's a trash song. Um, but she has this moment where she's looking into a body of water and maybe I hadn't been paying attention because I couldn't figure out like where is she at where she's in water she sees water but the face of Zuko appears in the water Mm -hmm. and she's like staring lovingly into it and then they pan out it's a fucking kiddie pool like that (laughs) is their relationship okay it's as deep as a fucking kiddie pool and I was just like okay I'm out like I'm just done I'm not gonna I'm not engaging in this like you're singing to a kiddie pool And you see the lo- the love of your life in the fa- in the reflected in the water of this dirty ass kiddie pool that's been sitting out all day. Like, I just I'm just not gonna I can't I can't do it I can't, I cannot get past that. So I don't see it. And I, I mean yeah no I just <laughs> I can't get there. Uh, all right. Well let's okay. So let's back up and let's just talk about the plot quote unquote of mm-hmm. this film starting with the sandy danny relationship Mm -hmm. which begins in a prologue sequence idyllically Mm -hmm. on the beach where they are just hopelessly in love and And happy and frolicking and love is a many splendor thing which i think that too was an invention for the movie and i kind of think that's a mistake because i think that showing that takes the fun out of the song summer nights Mm -hmm. in which they're each telling different 
different versions right. of how that relationship went. We've already seen how the relationship went. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of think that's a mistake. Um, but it, it does give us a good idea of sort of who Danny is. I mean, he starts getting pretty handsy there towards the end. And she's like, you're going to ruin it. And he goes, no, it'll make it better, which is such a fuckboy thing to say. Like, it just, no, it just means we love each other more. No, it actually doesn't, sir. It means you're horny and you're a teenager. I'll respect you more right. in the morning. So I think, and that will not be the last time that he gets very aggressive. Uh, so I think it... it for that, at least, it gives us a sort of good idea of sort of who he is as a teenage boy and who he, who she is as a teenage girl. And that that is difficult for me to say because everybody in this movie looks 40 years old. And so that was the other part of it where it's like... I mean, okay, so everybody complains about that with this movie, and it's certainly true. Travolta was in his mid-20s. I think Olivia Newton-John was around the same age or even a little older. Stockard Channing was like 34 Mm -hmm. playing a high school student. That actually didn't bother me at all. And part of that, I think, is that my parents were about the exact age of the characters in this movie. Mm -hmm. I think they both graduated high school in like 57, 58. So that's the perfect time period. And they were, my mother was a Sandy and my father was a Zuko. (laughs) But if you look at their high school yearbooks, fucking everybody looks like they were 40 years old. (laughs) That's what kids looked like in the 50s, is they all looked like 40-year-old chartered accountants. So that actually didn't bother me that much. It bugged the shit out of me, but okay. (laughs) Yeah, so yeah, so then we go from that to the other, I guess people call it classic song, which is the Summer Lovin' song. Mm-hmm. Which is again, I like that song. I think that's a good song. I think it's a terrible song. <laughs> I do not like it as a song, and it's just—it's very. I've had it stuck in my head ever since we watched. Yes, the I know movie. you've been singing it um, <laughs> to my great joy. I feel uh, like there were invisible air quotes around singing. There well, when you, did you know, that. sing talking. It's a creepy ass song. <laughs> Because she's sitting there telling her friends, her girlfriends, that it was just a very chaste, loving, wonderful summer. Mm-hmm. And he's over there saying, or they're like, oh, did she put up a fight? It's like, what? <laughs> what? Why is that a normal question? Like, <laughs> it's just, just, so it's, yeah, I can't. But that's that sexual dichotomy thing, right? Girls no, were expected I, to put yes, up a fight. I understand. Yes. Um, unless they were. And boys were supposed to. Rizzo. Convince. But yeah, I just, I can't get on board with that. Especially since we know she did, because you tried to basically put your whole fucking body down her throat, and she's like, back the fuck up. See, that's why I think that opening scene is a mistake, because there would without that, there would be the possibility that maybe Sandy was lying. Mm. Maybe Sandy was protecting her reputation and went further than she's pretending she went, mm-hmm. and was not such a good girl. Sure, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't like the song. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about Rizzo, which... Who I think you like better. Rizzo was probably the only character that I enjoyed in the entire film. And mainly because, you know, going back to the point that everybody looked 40, Rizzo acted as though she was 40 Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways. Rizzo was just like, men ain't shit, and I'm going to do what I want to do and have the fun that I want to have, and Mm -hmm. that's sort of it. When Sandy was singing Summer Nights and everybody was sort of swooning over it, and I think um, Sandy made some comment that like oh you know he's special or something like yeah. that and Rizzo was like there's no such thing which thank you yeah. there's no such thing as a it's Excuse just me? not there yeah, there's no such thing as a special guy <laughs> yeah I'm your husband you remember that right I'm here I'm right here in the room with you 
What I'm saying is Rizzo has been around and knows some things. <laughs> at the ve- here's at the very least, there's no special dude in high school. Like there just isn't. Yeah, that's fair. There's no dude you're gonna meet in high school that is gonna be the dude. Like it's just <laughs> no, they're trash and they <laughs> they are not fully developed. So for the most part, get your hickey and go. Like just no. It's not worth your time. Well she got more than hickeys. She did. She got more than hickeys. And I think some of those critics that I read the quotes from were right in that she is not really slut-shamed for that. The guys do a little bit. When when the school finds, when everyone in school finds out that she may be pregnant, that's when she is sort of shunned and people are sort of laughing at her, I think. is Yeah, really... I think even before that, like, Danny makes some comment about sloppy seconds yeah. and stuff like that. So there's a little slut-shaming, but little she's bit. not ostracized. And there's... That instance where the guy, what was the rival gang? The Scorpions? The Scorpions. Uh, where he says, I'll buy your car for 75 cents. And that includes your the girl, girl, the girl right. meaning yes. Rizzo. So right. there are a, a few places where she's definitely yeah. sort of devalued and dehumanized just because she happens to be, you know, sexually realized person. Right. I mean, she's sexually empowered in a way nobody yeah. else in the film is, including the man, because we also find out in that scene, Kaniki is a virgin. Seventh grade. You've had that condom in your wallet since seventh grade. Why do you still have it? Yeah, they don't last that long. And again, this is why sexual education in schools is so important. So you can say those things have expiration dates. You need to just go ahead and buy some more or admit that you're not having sex and you don't need a condom. You dumbass. So, yeah, I think Rizzo is sort of the only character worth a damn in this whole movie. I kind of agree with that. And when I said earlier that there's no emotional authenticity to it, I think she's the slight exception to that because I think that character is interesting. And I think the song she sings towards the end of the movie Mm -hmm. is a really interesting song. It is because it is about a woman who's saying, you know, I have no shame in the fact that I have sexual needs. Mm -hmm. I have no shame in being interested in as many dudes as I want to be interested in. But then there's this layer of vulnerability in that. That it, it, she's also sort of expressing a fear of sort of falling for one guy or putting right. herself in a position where she could be hurt. Right. Basically, the song is saying sex is not a risk. Right. Love, Love is, is a the risk. risk. Right. So, yeah. So Rizzo. And again, I don't know that I like the song as a song, but I do think it was probably in terms of character and narrative. It's the most interesting song in the film. Yes. And I read that that was a song Stalker Channing had to fight for them to keep in the film. Really? That they wanted to take it out. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, explains the rest of the movie. That the producers wanted to squash what is, to me, the only emotional authenticity in the film. Kind of explains how the rest of the film went mm-hmm. so wrong. Mm-hmm. And what happened when the show was translated from Chicago to right. Broadway. Yeah. That it just was this process of making it fun and campy mm-hmm. and crowd-pleasing and squashing anything that was real right. in it. Well, and Rizzo also just has some of the better lines and innuendos mm-hmm. if you know if we're going to make the argument this is a sort of that this is a sort of you know subversive film it really is Rizzo and her sort of side comments that really sort of put that over the top yeah yeah some good examples of that well there's one where i think it's is it Zuko that says bite bite the weenie uh one of them does one yeah. of them tells her to bite the weenie and she's go she goes with relish yes and I'm which is like, a good line yes bitch <laughs> um so while licking a an ice cream cone i believe uh-huh. 
So she has a, a few good moments like that. The dialogue is fairly crude for yes. a movie that first graders were seeing. Yes. I mean, there's Flog Your Log is in here. Mm-hmm. We have uh, Grease Lightning talks about the car being a pussy wagon. Right. Um, that song also says something about Chicksel Cream for mm-hmm. Grease Lightning. And I believe that is the dance number where Zuko rubs uh, Saran Wrap over his crotch, which... I believe people actually had used saran wrap as a condom alternative. That's uh, that's not a good idea. It is PSA, not. PSA, that, that's not a good idea. Again, why sexual education in schools is important. <laughs> Don't do that. Grease Lightning, by the way, was also supposed to be Kanicki's song. Mm-hmm. Well, it's Travol- his fucking car! John Travolta has very openly said, yeah, I was the star and I wanted that song and I took it. He's a dick. See, that's, <laughs> like, it was Kanicki's car, so he it should have been his song. Yeah. But yeah, there were a lot of sort of little lines like that where that could, you know, go over the head of both parents if they weren't really paying attention and, you mm-hmm. know, little children that were going to see it. Like there was a, a scene where Rizzo and who was the girl that had all the like boyfriends in the military? Uh, Marty. I think that's Marty. Uh, they were talking and this is when Rizzo thought she was pregnant. Who, by the way, is the hot one. She is. She is a hot girl. Yeah. Um, but she says something. She. It, this is after they, the little American bandstand was at their school and the the host of it who was like a 40 year old man yes who was hitting on this high school girl the whole night um she said something to the effect of and he put um, I, I caught him trying to put, put aspirin in my coke and yeah. it's like that bitch got roofie <laughs> yep. and you if you're not paying attention you're like wait what what did she just say so there are some moments like that that are sort of mm-hmm sly and tongue-in-cheek um and then there's some less subtle innuendo like when danny gets the car door slammed on his erection right yes after trying to grope sandy at the Mm drive-in sexual assault number two (laughs) did he try to sneeze and cop a feel i think that's what that move was there should just be like some i think it's the job of older men who have who know better to tell the younger like just don't it's not gonna work the yawn doesn't work the sneeze doesn't work the oh i fell and i touched your boob doesn't work like none of these things are good tactics they are not going to endear you to the the woman that you are you know trying to feel up just just don't do it one of these days we're gonna watch a movie called diner you'll remember this conversation just just stop (laughs) psa number three uh-huh. Or whatever number we're on. Don't drop out of school your fucking senior year. To go to beauty school? To do anything. <laughs> just finish your senior. It's your senior. You just finish. Just get the diploma and then go do what the hell you want to do. Do not drop out senior year. There's no reason to, unless you have a guaranteed, you know, crazy job that's just going to be very lucrative. Unless that is the case or you are, you know, starring in a new Nickelodeon show or something. Do not <laughs> drop out your senior year. Year. But Frenchie was going to go to beauty school. Somebody told her wrong. Somebody could have looked at Frenchie's hair the whole movie and been like, that's not Jolene. Like, just, <laughs> you need to maybe think something, think about something else, Frenchie. I thought that pink dye job was pretty good, actually. It was not. It was like a toilet bowl dye job. It was not good at all. It was not good. I did sort of like that song where he, because he was sort of reading her. It was just like, you're an idiot. Beauty school dropout. Yeah. Yeah, With Frankie Avalon. You need to go back to school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't drop out in the senior year. (laughs) That is a good scene, actually. If more of the movie had been like that, Mm -hmm. I think I would have liked this movie better because that just went beyond. Yeah. And went into this surreal... It's like those the songs in The Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. It was very much that kind of sequence. Yeah. But it also followed a scene that annoyed the shit out of me, which is Frankie's the only person left in this diner, and she's talking to the waitress who's obviously at the end of her shift and trying to clean up and get out of there. And Frankie's like, ew! 
I'm having trouble in beauty school and my life is hard. It's a lot harder than she thought it was going to be. Like, but bitch, this waitress is trying to get out. Like, it's the end of the shift. I have turned the lights off. I am not here to be your guidance counselor. Don't drop out in your senior year. I'm trying to clean up the catch-ups. Move. No, no, the adults in this movie are there just to serve the children. Exactly. The, The shop teacher goes to the drag race with them. Like, and this is something that one of the reviews, let me find it here. Um, this is one of the reviews. This was Judith Martin writing for the Washington Post in 1978. And she objected to just the tonal anachronisms Mm -hmm. in the film. She said, couldn't the makers of Greece have unearthed one person who was alive in the time, perhaps even one who attended an American high school then, and check their information? She says there are basic wrong assumptions about the way teenagers and adults viewed each other. That young people could openly defy their elders was a later discovery. In this film, parents are not a factor. There is no hint of parental control to be obeyed or disobeyed. Pupils are invited to throw pies in the faces of their teachers at a school carnival. Where is the authoritarianism against which the next decade rebelled and she says oh she says the film also failed to to actually address the class issues that it set up Mm -hmm. and said that was a she said that was a much bigger deal in the 50s than the movie makes it out to be Mm -hmm. she says at the end sandy merely adopts danny's style by changing her clothes from cute to vulgar but the idea that she may have made a commitment to cross class lines that she is thus defying her parents and the life laid out for her after high school is lost because throughout the film these distinctions have been blurred And that's true. Mm. And again, I'll go back to my own parents. (laughs) And my mother married the Danny Zuko, and her parents never forgave her for that, basically. (laughs) And as much as I love you and your existence, and it would not be here were it not for your particular parents getting together, Uh she probably could have had a better life had she done something. Yeah, it was no, it was not a happy marriage. (laughs) No, not at all. It was for a little while, but then no, it wasn't. Because that's what happens. Yeah. Danny Zuko, the shit stops being cute. (laughs) After a while, especially once you have children, like that little rebellious, I don't actually want to have a real job. I don't actually want to have to try. I just kind of want to hang out. Then it becomes a drinking problem. <laughs> then it becomes, you know, domestic violence. It becomes other things. Like there are all these okay, other we're, things. We're not talking about my we're family. Not, no, no, no. I'm not talking about your family at all. Okay. No. <laughs> what I am saying that's sort of the path that those couples tend to go down. And it's just like, mm, maybe you should have made some different choices. <laughs> maybe you should have stuck with the Aryan prince that you were dating before. No, that guy was not. No. The, the jock. The jock. Mm-hmm. Really? Because this... Oh, here's the thing. So the scene is... She's standing in the bleachers with her Aryan prince. And <laughs> Zuko is like running laps around the track after trying basically every sport known to man and failing. So he gets jealous because she's standing there next to the Aryan prince. And he starts trying to do the hurdles. Yeah. So he does a couple of them all right. He's pretty good at the hurdles. And then wipes the fuck out. <laughs> Uh-huh. And she runs to him. That's the moment that she decides this is the man that, that I want to be with. That is when they get back together. When he yes. fails hard <laughs> at track, so it's just uh, that's not a good start to a relationship. And I, yeah, that's not love. That's not a good relationship. There's no future there. And at the end, his quote unquote changing for her is putting on a Letterman sweater that he apparently earned in track. But again, we did not see him doing well at track. But she has to get sewn in to black <laughs> spandex. She perms her hair. She puts on makeup. She puts on heels. Takes she learns up to smoke. smoking yeah. a deadly fucking habit to be with this asshole who can't even do the hurdles. So I read that the the original writers of the show 
actually thought they were being subversive in that because the traditional story was always that the love of a good woman changed the man Mm -hmm. and they wanted to switch that Mm -hmm. they wanted to flip that on its head and say no but you know what that's always been the traditional story because Mm -hmm. that's the because we do make you better that's i mean that just is what it is married men live longer and tend to be healthier and more successful and happy than unmarried heterosexual men. Um, when, when does that kick in for me? I, you know, <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> I got you out of your acid wash jeans. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I never. I'm I never wore trying very hard. Jeans. But there's a reason why that's been the narrative of like the woman makes you better. The problem with that narrative, though, is then it, girls grow up thinking that it is their responsibility to sort of raise a fucking grown-ass man, and it is not. But I don't know what about him and his friends and their lifestyle would be so appealing that she felt that she needed to change. Well, okay, so let's talk about that change. So what motivates that change? Is it just to get Danny? Mm-hmm. Which, frankly, she could have Danny. Right, he was wanted to be with she her. She doesn't need to change right. to be with Danny, so why does she change? Well, except, I mean, he was attracted to her as she was, but was also embarrassed to then bring her around his friends. <laughs> so, again, red flag. Anybody that is, like, ashamed to bring you around. Yeah. When, like, there's no, like, you are nothing but, you know, class and grace and whatever. Like, just maybe don't be with that person. Um, but so I read this article in the Mary Sue that sort of painted that moment where Sandy decides that she is going to change and become basically a pink lady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That that was a a feminist moment. That the song that she sings when she's watching Danny race the scorpion dude. Right. Where she's like, maybe I have been sort of repressing some things or maybe this isn't truly who I am. Holding myself back. Holding myself back. It's her realization that there's maybe something within her that she's been denying. And so then the next scene is we see her all vamped up. Right. So that's my question. Is this actually a feminist? I mean if that's the case sexual empowerment. If that is the case then I mean all right, I don't know why that has involved smoking. Um Like clothes and perming your hair and all that. That's one thing, but you really like don't do that. So yeah, I mean, if if we make the argument that that song before we reveal quote unquote bad Sandy is her coming to a realization on her own that she is someone else, then I suppose you could say that that is a feminist moment. Most feminists like to let their vaginas breathe. <laughs> Just in general. Just saying. <laughs> and the spandex pants are not... Do not allow for that. Mm-hmm. PSA number four. PSA number four. Let your vaginas breathe. <laughs> and again, I mean, that's a, the sort of the class argument that you brought up before. Sandy's probably used to nice things. Uh, yeah, I, I would think so. So Danny's not going to be able to provide nice things. Although she's things. from Australia. Is there, are there any nice things in Australia, really? Why would you diss Australia? You've never, you don't know anything about Australia. So, yeah, I just... Well, also, and couldn't she have been sexually empowered and still stayed... Herself. Herself. But, right, but then we get back to the argument of, like, maybe, was that not herself? Was good Sandra D a performance that she felt that she had to act out to sort of... Right, this socially mandated, right. repressed And so if that's image. the case, if she really is, you know... A big hoe bag. Well, but this, that's judgmental. <laughs> if she really is... And her changing clothes and smoking doesn't mean that she's going to go be promiscuous. It just means... No. That, so 
I just, yeah, I don't... It's and the movie kind of winks at that anyway, because in that final scene after Slutty Sandy shows up, she has the cigarette and she, like, doesn't know what to do with it. There's just a quick moment where she doesn't know what to do with it and she glances at the other girls mm-hmm. and they, they mime, they're like, throw it on the ground. Mm-hmm. And she goes, oh, and she throws it on the ground and stomps on it. It's like a little winking moment that says that transformation is not real, that she's still... She doesn't know what to do with a penis? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? I, I wasn't reading quite that much into it, <laughs> but sure, if you want to go that way. Throw them on the ground. That's almost PSA certainly PSA number also. six. Throw them on the ground. <laughs> and stamp them out with your high heel shoes. <laughs> oh, this all explains why I'm not getting better. <laughs> I'm not going to let her in track. All right, you want you want to talk about the music? I didn't like it. <laughs> you didn't like any of it? I didn't like any Like, again, I appreciated... Rizzo's last song, mm-hmm. but what about her first song, the Sandra D song? Yes, not really. No, I don't like it. Okay, I just I didn't think the music was good, so I don't really have anything to say about the music in this musical. <laughs> I think Summer Nights is a good song. Nope. I think uh, the one that I want is a catchy song. No, <sighs> you're tough. You're a tough audience. Hand jive, the dancing in the gym. That was the most seizureific dancing. <laughs> I have ever seen. Like, is that a word? I probably not. But that's it's like they just were just sort of humping and <laughs> it wasn't rhythmic in any way. Really, it it didn't. There was no no. You said the same thing about Footloose. I think again, you just don't like watching white people dance. <laughs> I think you fundamentally dismiss white dance culture. I do not. I enjoy the dancing scenes and um dirty dancing. <laughs> Okay. But yeah, this was just, they were just sort of like dragging each other on the floor and humping each other in the faces. And I'm fine with like suggestive <laughs> dancing, but it wasn't done in any sort of like graceful way. Oh, I forgot just... about cha-cha. Do we need to talk about cha-cha? I mean, apparently cha-cha is cha-cha'd a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. Again, so she was just another sort of vector of slut-shaming. Mm-hmm. Um, she was the, she started out as the main girl of the dude from the Scorpion gang and yeah. then ended up with Kaniki. Uh, possibly. No, because yeah. Kaniki was with... No, because Nikki was back with Rizzo, Rizzo at the end right. of the movie. Well, she was with somebody and then ended up with I Danny. I think she went... She ended up back with the Scorpion dude, I think. Oh, okay. Anyway, she ends up doing the last dance with Danny, um, and they win the, the dance competition. Yeah, after he lets her cut in... Right. Again... On, on Sandy. Your relationship is bad. <laughs> um, and then plays dumb the next day of just like, well, I was just doing this dance competition, mm-hmm. and it's not a big deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And is a little vague about his past relationship. Relationships with Chacha and well. elbows her in the tit. Did you see that? <laughs> I did so see when they, that, like, yes. <laughs> this is a terrible relationship. He's struggling to get whatever raggedy ass ring he's wearing on his finger so that he can give it to her as some sort of sign of commitment. Mm-hmm. When really he just wants to give it to her so she can open up the legs. And in the struggle to get the ring off, he elbows her in the tit. I would have got out the car then and been like, "Bitch." Yeah. Like, no. But then he gives her the ring and everything is fine. No, then she's like, oh, this proves you respect me. And then he tries to eat her face again. (laughs) And she has to get out of the car. Question. When were banging erasers ever a legitimate punishment? Did that actually happen in real life? I I think, yes. I think actually. How is that a punishment? I remember banging erasers being a thing. But how is it a punishment? Well, that's that's what I was going to say is that I actually remember in our school, I feel like it was like a reward. (laughs) 
or like something you it's did. It's not that either. It was like something you did to suck up. It was like, oh, can you go bang the erasers for me? And the kid would take the erasers out. And it was just kind of cool just to be outside the school on your own. You'd go outside and you bang the erasers together. Okay. But no, it wasn't a big punishment. Okay. Writing lines was punishment, and that's a stupid punishment too. I know that wasn't a I thing think, either when I was growing up. No. What, what did you, what did they do? In, well, not that you were ever punished because you're. What? You don't know my life. You're a little Sandra D. But I was not a Sandra D. <laughs> Nor was I a Rizzo. I don't. I was. I yeah. I was a chick eating the Twinkies. That's who I was. <laughs> Where the snacks at? You were Eugene. <laughs> Eugene is fucking Steve Jobs. That's who Eugene is. That's who she should have been with. That's who you go with, okay? Have some fucking vision in your life. Want better for yourself. Go with Eugene. Anyway, I don't remember what our punishments were. I really was never punished. So- <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, at some point we had like detention and stuff, but when we were young, I don't remember, but like I, when she was like, oh, don't make me send you to go bang a racist like what mm-hmm. why is that a bad thing why is that a punishment <laughs> that was a sorry not relevant no, to the plot no, it's a, you know it's I a valid just, it's a valid I was question if that was actually a thing in real life another question mm-hmm. going back to the drag race yes was that james bond's car <laughs> the scorpion guy's yeah. car that had the like bend her that seems unlikely but okay, sure. That was not the most thrilling drag race I've ever it seen. It was basically as bad as the tractor race in <laughs> Footloose. This, this movie and Footloose actually have a lot in common. Yeah. It was terrible. But I just, yeah. What I'm saying is fix your face before you focus on your car. <laughs> Smooth that out before you focus on your car. Before now you- you're making fun of the scorpion guy's complexion? He was a dick! <laughs> How much money did you put into that car that you could have put into some salicylic acid? He did look like he'd had some kind of industrial accident. Yeah, he like he'd been little, like a mm-hmm. burn victim or something. Like he was like, just deal with that. You, your car is super souped up, but your face. Now we lost his car. Now he lost his car. Now you just with the face. And apparently that was the flying car. The scorpion car? Yeah, because they were they were racing for pink slips. So that's the car Danny. Oh, has I didn't know what the fuck that meant. At the end of the movie, yeah, oh. that's for ownership of the car. Oh, I see. Okay. Yes. Okay. So they won Scorpion Guy's car. So I'm assuming that's the car Danny is driving at the end of the movie. It's the Chitty Chitty Bang the, Bang car. The Chitty Chitty Bang Bang car that flies mm-hmm. off into the clouds. Wonderful. There is apparently a, I don't think, very serious internet theory that proposes the notion that Sandy is dead. When did she die? She died before the movie started. What? So there's the line in the first song where Danny says she almost drowned. Right. I had to save her swimming. And then somehow that translates into a theory that the entire movie is basically, you know, the uh, vision Sandy has in her dying moments. And that's what the car flying off into the clouds at the end represents is that Sandy is flying off to heaven. That is a shitty last vision. (laughs) I hope mine is better than that yeah i don't think it's a very good theory i don't think it's no, a that's that's a reach yeah that one's a reach <laughs> so who's more fuckable zuko or kaniki so i don't understand that dichotomy um i feel like aren't they the same person <laughs> well one's blonde and one's brunette right but that's not the same and Aaron saying... says kaniki was a much better dancer but he didn't get the lead so she says, you know, it's like, oh, it's the McCartney-Lennon mm-hmm. debate. It's the Beatles-Stones debate. I don't think these two people are different. 
And they are basically... So Lennon and McCartney were very different. Right. Beatles and the Stones, Beatles and Stones are different very different. Kaniki Zuko, not Basically so the different. same poser-ass, <laughs> horny high school dudes who actually aren't doing anything and secretly want to be loved by, you know, the girl that they're into. So they're not, I mean, so yeah, that's just a, do you like blondes or brunettes? I don't really have a preference either way. If we're talking just physically, I guess Kaniki is somewhat more attractive than Zuko to me, I guess. But that's, again. Splitting hairs there. Very. Like, just, mm-mm. When is Hairspray set? Is that the 50s as well? Uh, That might be 60s, 60s. but yeah, not too far off, I would say, from this. I think I probably found that more interesting than... See, I have the exact same problem with John Waters' movies. I I love John Waters, the Mm, person. mm -hmm. His movies just kind of annoy me Mm -hmm. in the same way that Grease does. Again, it's just too much camp. Mm -hmm. It's just too aggressively phony for me. Yeah. And that may just be, that's me, that's a tonal thing, a frequency thing that just doesn't work for me. See, I don't mind hairspray. And and again, maybe this is proof that it's like it depends on sort of what age you come to these things. But to me, hairspray felt sort of transgressive in a way. And part of that is also it's John Waters. Yeah, um, I mean, I think John Waters <laughs> is right, legitimately so. <laughs> transgressive. But having her mom be played by, was it Divine played the mom, right? Or who? In the original, yes. Yeah, there was a remake and you know who played the mom in the remake. Oh God, it was John Travolta. <laughs> Oh my god, it was. No, I I have not seen <laughs> I haven't I seen, haven't seen that the one. remake either. I saw the one with Ricky Lake, which was was that? Yeah, so that came out eighty eight. So right. So I think maybe it's because maybe it just hit me at the right time. Like I was still young at that point. Um, you, you were about the same age that Aaron was when she saw Grease. Right. Greece. So maybe that's what it but I wouldn't argue that like hairspray taught me about love or anything like that. Sexual mores. Not and part of that is the household I grew up Like, I was not raised in a Catholic school or anything. Like, like my family was pretty... My family isn't conservative in that way, in terms of, like... Right, so you didn't have the repression. Right, there was no real repression right. in that way. Like, you know, there wasn't any... I mean, there, of course, there were rules, but it's like, they were adults in front of the children, and you were expected as a child to know, you know, what was and wasn't for you. Mm-hmm. So, like, I can swear and I can do whatever I want. You know your place. You are a child. You know, this is grown folks talking. You, have, you can be in the room. You can listen or right. whatever, but, like, it is not for you. And then in terms of sex, it was... It was never don't have sex. It was don't get pregnant. Right. So, like, those are two very different conversations, yeah. right? It's like, you can have sex and, you know, like, I'm not, or at least I'm not going to be naive enough to think that you are not going to have right. sex. What I will say is do not come back here with no babies. Um, Make sure that the guy's condom has not, not been, been in, been in his, his pocket since the seventh right. grade. Right. Yeah. But in, back to hairspray. So, yes, it was Divine playing the mother and... I bring it up also because that was also another one of the major plot points was that there was this big dance competition, this big televised dance competition that they wanted to win. Do you remember American Bandstand? Was that part of your youth? I'm Soul Train. Oh, of course. (laughs) Okay. Well, American Bandstand was a big part, even of my youth. No, I know what American Bandstand is, but like, I have no connection to American Bandstand. I was Soul Train, but. The sort of big controversial moment being um, her friend dancing with a black kid. Like, mm-hmm. that was what was, you know. And so, really, it wasn't about rebellion sort of for rebellion's sake. It was rebellion that was reflecting a sort of larger societal change. Right. 
Like, that's maybe more interesting to me or more. And again, going back to, like, that first quote that you read, it didn't feel, none of the actions of these of these kids felt rebellious, really, in any way. Like, okay, you might have been having sex, and I guess that was, that was a big deal, but... Well, I think part of that speaks to that, the point somebody else in one of those quotes I read made about there's no parents in right, this movie. Right, so what are you reacting to? So there against? aren't any parents putting that pressure on Sandy mm-hmm. to be the Sandra D. Mm-hmm. Sandy. That we see, at least. That we eyes. see, right. We assume they exist, but mm-hmm. we there's no reference to them. We never see them. It never comes up. It is the school is just this little self-contained mm-hmm. world in which, yeah, kids can do pretty much whatever they want right. and have whatever identity they want to assume. Yeah, it's kind of shallow. Yeah. So I guess, so yeah, I think that's what sort of took me down that line of thinking about Hairspray because I feel like there are a lot of similarities, but the stakes feel a little bit higher, a little more relevant than Greece. Well, that particular issue didn't come out because there didn't seem to be any black kids. There were, I spotted. At Rydell High. There were a couple. They, of course, did not have lines and they were very much so in the background, Mm -hmm. but there were a couple black kids. See, I noticed that and then I looked it up afterwards to see, like, when did the schools uh, desegregate? Brown versus Board was 54. Yeah, no, I know that. Mm-hmm. But, and actually, William Howard Taft High School, which is, that was the high school that they based this the on that one of them had gone to, mm-hmm. right, was like the last, one of the last high schools mm-hmm. in America to desegregate. So that mm-hmm. may have been an accurate representation of their experiences there. Okay. Didn't feel the need to change that for... No, probably the movie made in 1978 could have could have dealt with that a little yeah. better. Was there anything you liked about this movie? I said I sort of liked Rizzo. That's about it. Leaving out Rizzo's song, which is a cheap answer, what's the best song in the movie? I, then I have no answer. <laughs> you have to give me an answer. Then you have I to give have me an answer. no answer. Grease Lightning? No. Was there a song playing on a radio at any point or something? <laughs> like an actual song? There were a couple of, yeah. Okay, I'll pick whatever those were. Okay, so Hound Dog? <sighs> <laughs> I never want to be in a position to choose Elvis Presley. I know, that's why I picked that one. I guess so, sure. Only because it actually belongs to yes, a black woman. Yes, we know. You've told us this before. So, yeah, sure, I'll choose Hound Dog. <sighs> okay. Well, I think I enjoyed it a little more than you did. Mm-hmm. I at least thought a couple of the songs were catchy. I thought there were some nice moments here and there scattered throughout. I thought Starker Channing was great. I thought Rizzo no, I was know, great. Yeah, I, I like Rizzo. I like Frenchie. I like the, the scene with Frenchie and the teen angel, mm-hmm. Frankie Avalon. Mm-hmm. All right, well, we'll see what you think of the sequel. I'm not watching the sequel. Um, which... You didn't even enjoy this, so I don't know why you're trying to die on this hill. <laughs> I feel I feel like we're letting down the fans of Greece here. How are we letting we watched it? How are we letting them down? <laughs> Cuz we didn't really like it at all. Yeah, I really didn't. <laughs> I tried. I really did try. And that's the thing is like it's the same with Mama Mia. It's like millions of people disagree with us. So, okay, you have the majority. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need my random ass to enjoy this thing that you love. Um, I just don't. And I, I will accept the argument that maybe I just am seeing it at the wrong point in life. Like, had I seen it earlier, it may have been a completely different experience for me. Mm-hmm. But from where I stand now, I, I do not get the appeal at all. Mm-hmm. 
That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week when we have a little change of tone and genre. Uh, Nikki and I are taking advantage of the opportunity to see some of the films on our list on the big screen, and next week we are catching a big screen 70mm showing of Lawrence of Arabia at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago. Nikki, are you looking forward to that one? You know, it's pretty Peter O'Toole. Mm-hmm. So he was very pretty. He's so pretty. And the movie is very pretty. As I've heard... Um, I've also heard it's very long. Long stretches of desert. <laughs> so. I mean, it's, it depends on your definition of long. It's over four hours, right? It's. I believe you said there's an intermission. Am the, I right? At least one intermission. Yeah. yeah. So that's, uh, that's some pretty long shit. I don't think I've been in an intermission film in theaters since Malcolm X. Okay. So it's been a while. Basically the same movie. Right. Yes. That dolly shot of Peter O'Toole <laughs> through the desert. <laughs> In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic, leave a review for us on iTunes, or send an email to michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means making your partner watch movies they really, really don't want to watch. I think you should have ended up with Kaniki. I've decided that that's who I'm shipping. Kaniki and Danny forever. T-Birds for life. <laughs> It'd be a very different movie. They can make a little tea with their penises together. <laughs> okay, that's it. <laughs> you always take it a step too far. <laughs>